Well, um, welcome. Uh, hope you're having a great June weekend with this spectacular weather. Welcome back to those of you who were here just a few hours ago for the big uh, party. That was a great time. And welcome to those joining us at Crossroads in Highland Park and upstairs at the O1. So about 20, 25 years ago when our middle son, uh, Ben, was two, uh, we had a series of um, episodes in which we would hear this little two-year-old boy's voice uh, saying just one word. He wasn't really talking. We just would hear, stuck. Uh, stuck. And it, wasn't, it wasn't with much panic. It was just sort of a matter-of-fact reporting and we learned if we heard that, we needed to run fast and we would find Ben on top of the bookshelves or hanging by one hand from the shelf in the, in the closet or, you know, someplace suspended with, you know, his toes on the back of the rocker and his hands on the ironing board. And you're always like, how did you get here? Uh, he survived. We were not always confident that he would, but he survived in part because uh, he was able to recognize when he was stuck, and he was willing to ask for help, which means that he's different from many adults who do not know when they're stuck and who are often unwilling to ask for help. But that is the premise of this this entire series. Uh, Our default mode is to be stuck. We're supposed to keep going and growing, right? God will meet us wherever we are, But he doesn't want to leave us there. And we're supposed to become more like Christ. More loving and kind. More self-control. More patience and joy. Uh, Those are the things that are supposed to happen uh, as we move forward. But it often doesn't. And we see in the New Testament uh, there was frustration on the part of Paul in Ephesians 4. The The writer of Hebrews was also frustrated. People are not growing. You're stalled. You're stuck. You need to be moving forward. And uh, so we're unpacking this, and we've noted that there are a variety of different terms that are used today in, you know, sort of modern parlance. We talk about people who are, are held back by addictions or uh, by anger or a lack of forgiveness, and some people are pushed down by oppression and injustice or people are lack focus or discipline. There's all kinds of different ways we might describe somebody being stuck today, it all falls under the, the big rubric of sin in the Bible, and there are a variety of different uh, ways that this word becomes uh, nuanced and it, the analogies and stories that are told that, that describe it as a little bit more complicated than I think most of us have appreciated. So we kick this off by noting that uh, before sin is actions, it is beliefs. That, um, that before sin manifests itself in some sort of behavior, it is, um, it is, uh, it is based on the roots that we put, it, put down. Like plants, we all have roots. We anchor ourselves in some set of ideas or values, some starting assumptions, and uh, that's what nurtures us and informs how we live. And so we looked in Jeremiah 17 at the idea that uh, our roots need to go into God. And then last week was the unpleasant, disruptive idea that other people see things about us that we may not see about ourselves, right? That that if our behavior does not line up with who we want to be, if, if if we're not as good as we think we are, or if we're worse than we have admitted to ourselves, we can subconsciously edit the facts on the ground. 
and lie to ourselves. We, not just, we don't just lie to other people. We can lie to ourselves. We can spin uh, the, the facts, and we don't see what's really happening. And so we were in 1 Samuel chapter 15 looking at how Saul did it. It's a very predictable pattern that we follow when, we do, when, when who we are doesn't, when our actions don't comport with who we want to be, we sometimes deny the facts as they are, and then we blame other people for what's going wrong, and then we rationalize or justify our behavior. So we saw that with Saul, deny, blame, and rationalize. Uh, we're, we're going a little bit deeper in that idea today, uh, because it's not just that we don't always see the truth about ourselves. We often have a, uh, an inflated sense of our own importance or value. And the theological term for this is uh, self-righteousness. Uh, and it is, a, it is an ugly word. Jesus is on record uh, a thousand different places as being against self-righteousness. This is sort of the, the smug attitude of, of virtue I'm, I'm better than you are because I am. I mean, it's just obvious, right? I mean, I'm more important than you are. I'm, I'm because, I don't know, because I'm taller or because I'm an American or because whatever. I'm just better than you are. And perhaps I'm better than you are. I think I'm better than you are because I'm a Christian. And I'm a better Christian than you are or I'm a Christian and you're not a Christian, so I matter more. And that is what we see on uh, display that attitude that uh, I, am, I am a particular kind of jerk. I am a religious jerk. We see that attitude uh, on display with Jonah. So Jonah's a prophet, uh, and he lives in the 8th century B.C. He, he lives and ministers between the division of Israel in 930 B.C., and the fall of the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. So Saul is the first king uh, of the united Israel. Right. So first it's Saul, then it is David, and then it's Solomon. And after Solomon, this is the high water mark. This is when Israel has the most glory, the most power, the most land. Everything is going great under Solomon. Then Solomon dies, and the country falls apart, and it splits into two pieces— you have the northern ten tribes, confusingly also called Israel, and you have the southern two tribes called Judah. So the northern ten tribes have a series of bad kings. They make bad choices, and, and they fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., never to be heard from again. I always joke that occasionally the National Enquirer will say, we found the lost ten tribes. They were in an airport terminal waiting for their flight, right? You know, they, so... But the, the northern ten tribes go away. We don't hear from them ever again. The southern two tribes live uh, on for another 150 years. Then they fall to the Babylonians, go into exile, and we follow that whole path through the rest of the Old Testament. Well, between the, the division in 930 B.C. and the fall of the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C., Jonah is a prophet. And so he is a spokesman for God. That's what prophets are. The priests represent the people to God. The prophets represent God to the people. He speaks on behalf of God to the people. However, instead of going to the Israelis, so the, the, the Jews, the northern ten tribes living in Israel, instead of going to them, they are still at this moment politically strong, 
although they're spiritually shallow and weak, instead of going to them and saying, you need to love God, you need to serve others, right? you need to get your act together, you need to humble yourself, instead of doing that, which is what he wanted to do, God sends Jonah to the Assyrians, the enemy, right? the country's enemy, who is legitimately their enemy. When they fall, they will fall to the Assyrians. So think... I don't know, whoever you want to think of as the enemy, ISIS, North Korea, whatever. This is the group hated by the Jews, feared by many, gaining power that Jonah is sent to speak to. And uh, Jonah doesn't want to go because he's very clear. No, he wants them to be judged. The message he's supposed to take is go to the Assyrians and say that if they don't repent, that in uh, 40 days I'm going to wipe them out. And, and uh, Jonah's like, but I want you to wipe them out, right? I mean, I don't want them to repent. So Jonah is told, okay, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. He gets on a boat headed to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. He's going the other direction. And Spain was sort of the outer outskirts of the, of the known world at this point. So he is headed as far away from God, as far away from anything as he possibly can go. And uh, the book of Jonah is not a long book. You can read it in 10 minutes. Uh, chapter 1 uh, is where God calls Jonah, go to, the, go to Nineveh, go to the Assyrians. And Jonah gets on a boat, headed to Tarshish, and then a storm kicks up. And uh, he, all the people on the boat eventually come to the conclusion that Jonah's the one that is at fault here. Jonah's the reason why they're, they're suffering. And they say to Jonah, who are you and what are you doing? He says, I'm a prophet of God and I'm trying to run from the God who created everything, land and the sea. And they go, oh, well, thank you so very much for you know, involving us in this. How are we not all going to die? And Jonah says, well, throw me overboard. So they pitch him overboard and... Uh, and Jonah chapter 2 is then a prayer of Jonah. He gets swallowed by the fish. And the only part that most people seem to remember about the book of Jonah is the fish. Uh, but chapter 2 reads like a psalm. It's his prayer. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer of thankfulness. It's a prayer, okay, I've been an idiot. Uh, that's, that's chapter 2. And then at the end of chapter 2, he gets spit out on land. In chapter 3, God says, okay, uh, take 2, go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah does go to Nineveh. And uh, he says to the people, you, you need to repent or it's all over in 40 days. And the people repent. So they're, they're like religiously more tuned in than Jonah. Right? They repent. And, and then Jonah, in the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, acts like a guest on the Jerry Springer show, right? He starts to pitch a fit. And, and he's whining and he's crying and he's throwing furniture around and eventually he sit, sits down uh, in this lawn chair outside of the city, apparently hoping that uh, in, in spite of the fact that they have repented, and this is exactly what he feared. And that's what he says to God. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were gracious and merciful. I knew that if I told them they had to repent, that they would repent. And you'd give them another chance. This is why I didn't come. And see, it's just playing out just like I thought. So, but he sits down in this lawn chair outside the city gates, apparently hoping that God is still going to send, you know, fire and brimstone down on them. And it's hot. And God sends a plant. 
chapter 4. And the plant grows up and it provides shade. And Jonah's happy. Again, Jonah is a very unstable guy, right? So Jonah is now happy. Life is good. He has a plant. He has a little bit of shade. And then the plant, God sends uh, uh, something to kill the plant. And Jonah is whining and crying and moaning. And my life is horrible again. And, um, and then the book of Jonah ends where God asks a question that is not answered, and it's a question in, in one sense to Jonah. It's a question in another sense, I think, to us. And basically, uh, God says, okay, so let me get this straight. Um, you're happy now. You were happy because of a plant, and then now you're sad now because the plant has died. And you're, you're grieving the death of the plant. And Jonah says, yes. And he says, and yet you want me to wipe out a city that has 120,000 kids in it. What's wrong with your heart? What's wrong with you? Now, Jonah doesn't answer the question. Um, we, don't, we don't really know how it ends for Jonah. Uh, again, he, he, what, what is obvious, if you go back and read the book, I, I read it again this week. Again, it takes 10 minutes. What's obvious is that Jonah's stuck. Right? It's not obvious that he gets unstuck. Now, if you read the book, you sort of come away uh, saying, uh, wow, there really is a sort of a missions mandate throughout the whole Bible because this is, there's a, you know, Jonah is, is given a message. Go talk about God's love and grace, right? Go. Leave where you're at. Go. There's a, that, that, that is a message throughout the Bible. So you see this missions mandate. You see how much God loves the city? Because the word city just keeps coming up over and over uh, about how God cares for the city, these places where people live and places of culture and art and activity. And then um, you also see an interesting thing. God sends Jonah to the city because the city is dangerous. Right? So a lot of Christians say, well, I can't, I can't do that. That would be dangerous. I can't go there. That would be risky. I can't, you know, a, there's this whole movement happening right now that Christians need to withdraw from culture, the Benedict option. We need to withdraw from public schools. We need to get out because it's, it's too risky. And, and interestingly, reading Jonah, it's like, it's because it's dangerous, you need to go. So there's a lot in the book of Jonah, fascinating book, but one of the big ideas here is Jonah is a religious jerk and he's stuck and it's unclear whether he gets unstuck, but the book certainly is a shot across the bow to us about uh, how we think about ourselves and whether we think we're better or more important than other people. Now, let me just pause for a second and say this is a, a, this is a complicated topic. So, for starters, I, I want to I be clear. We're not called to have a low view of ourselves. Okay, that's not, the, that's not the, the, the responsibility. It's not that we're supposed to have low self-image or low self-esteem. Lots of people today want their kids to have high self-esteem. Uh, okay, maybe. I'm, I'm more comfortable saying we want our kids to have the courage of their convictions. We want our kids... To, to understand that they matter and to not be sort of swept along by, by if they have low self-esteem by others who, who might argue that they don't matter or whatever. 
But what we really want with ourselves and with our kids are people who are self-forgetful. Right? So uh, C.S. Lewis does a brilliant job of the, talking about this at the, um, at the end of the chapter on pride in mere Christianity, where he says, if you talk to a truly humble person, if you talk to a person who really gets it, you don't come away thinking that they're humble. They certainly aren't telling you that they're humble. And you don't, you don't come away thinking that, they're, that they've got a low view of themselves. They're not complaining, oh, I'm, I'm rotten, I'm bad, I'm a wicked person, I'm, you know. You, know. you, don't, you don't hear that. He says, because that's a, that, high self-esteem and low self-esteem can be very selfish activities. What you, what you come away with if you talk to somebody who is truly humble in the gospel humility that we're called to, what you think is, oh, well, they were very interested in me, right? Because they're not self-referential. They're self-forgetful. And he says that's the goal, that we are self-forgetful. Not that we have to be involved or we're important or, you know, we have to do this. We're self-forgetful. That's what we're being called to. So it's not being told that we can't be self-righteous doesn't mean we have, a, have to have a low self-esteem. Secondly, we have to remind ourselves that the whole comparison thing is a, is a trap, right? Comparison is a fatally flawed exercise. You can feel good about yourself or bad about yourself, depending upon how you set it up. You want to feel good about yourself? You can find people who are worse than you are, right? Whatever the category is. They're a slower runner. They, they, they give less money to the poor. You pick it. You can find somebody who is worse than you are, and you can say, I'm good. Or you can find somebody that's better than you are, and you can feel bad. And we tend to do comparisons from a distance, right? We, we, we're comparing, in many cases, the facts on the ground, the reality under the surface of our own life with the highlight reel of someone else. And so we go, wow, I'm not, you know, whatever. I, Bill Gates is, is uh, smarter and has more business acumen than I do. Yes, probably true. Or, I'm not as good looking as, you know, whoever the hottest, greatest, sexiest person alive is, the 25-year-old coming out of Hollywood at this moment. Probably true, right? But we don't say, I'm not as good looking as Bill Gates, right? Or, I don't have the business acumen of that supermodel, right? I mean, it, it, maybe that supermodel has astute business acumen. But we're comparing, we're, we're finding the best or the worst of somebody from a distance and we're comparing ourselves. It's just a... It's an exercise that doesn't work. If you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to Jesus. <laughs> compare yourself uh, to him. That would be a place to start. But comparison to other people doesn't work. So, so this whole idea of self-righteousness is, is challenging because we're not being called to low self-image and comparison is, is trouble. And then there's a third reason why this is a confusing topic. And that's because when we're trying to figure out whether we're better than somebody else or how we would assess situation, it's just worth noting that there's different categories that these conversations would take place in. So there's what I'll just call the nonsense zone. Right? When, when, when we're, we're young, uh, we like or dislike people because 
Uh, oh, yes. Well, they're, they're, a, they're a Cardinals fan as opposed to a Cubs fan. Or they drink Pepsi as opposed to Coke. Or, or you know, they, you wear Lee jeans instead of Levi's, right? You're stupid. You're an idiot. Just be, and we make these assessments based on nothing. When I was in high school, I lived in East Moline, Illinois, which is its own city. Like North Chicago. It's not the north side of Chicago. It's its own city. And if you went to East Moline schools, if you went to United Township High School... You hated the people that went to Moline High School because they're from Moline. I mean, it's obvious. They're, they're losers, right? So you don't like people that are from Moline because we're from East Moline. So then I go to college six hours away, and in the first couple days I pick up, nobody knows where East Moline is. So I start to say that I'm from Moline which I hated just a couple days before. But now, saying I'm from East Moline makes me look like more of a hick than I am, and so I'm going to claim I'm from Moline. Then, a couple days later, I figure out no one knows where Moline is either. (laughs) So now I start to say I'm from outside of Chicago. And we hated the people in Chicago because at least the people in Moline had the courtesy to know who we were and hate us back. The people from Chicago didn't even know who we were. But now I'm from outside of Chicago, right? Because none of this matters to anyone. And uh, then, of course, in college, I pledged a fraternity and I, was, I moved on. Because now that I'm a member of the uh, Alpha Tau Omega fraternity, I had to be busy hating the Sig Chi's and the Delts and the Betas and the Phi Psi's, right? Because, and there's all these things. Most of us, at some point, not all, but most of us at some point grow out of the nonsense things. We realize, you know what, uh, none of that. None of that matters. You can joke about a Cubs cards fan or Packers and Bears. Some people don't joke about it, but it's, it's not important. Right? So those distinctions we get don't matter. But then there are other things where we say, well, doesn't that matter? Like, there are, in athletic competitions, you might say, well, I'm faster or taller or stronger or score more points or whatever it is. I, I think I am better, right? Aren't I better? <laughs> am I allowed to say that I'm better? Because I appear to be better. Or we get into business and we say, well, I'm making more profit or I uh, have more experience or... I get this in ways that you don't get this, right? And so how do we factor in and, and how, do we, how do we distance someone's value from someone's competencies? And then we get into areas where people are arguing, well, you know, uh, democracy or freedom of religion or uh, capitalism are bad things. I'm from, you know, I'm from Russia, and, and we, we see the flaws in those things. And you go, okay, so how do I have these more complicated conversations where I want to argue something is better than something else? And then there's this third zone where we get into religion. Now, I am always wanting to make the distinction between Christianity and religion because If you define religion as most people think of it, as the things you do in order to curry favor with God, then Christianity is not a religion. Christianity says we cannot earn our way forward. 
That's not the way this works. We are saved by grace. It's God coming down, not us reaching up. And so many people will make the point. Christianity is a relationship with God. It is not a religion. However, if you define religion differently, if you define religion as a set of beliefs, or if you define religion, a religion, as the people who ascribe to a certain set of beliefs, then Christianity becomes a religion. And it's critical that we recognize that Jesus goes on record as those who think they're better than other people because of their religion. And he does it with the Pharisees, who he almost never challenges the, the essence of their faith. It's their attitude he can't stand. Right? He doesn't challenge what, what they, he doesn't, he doesn't always challenge what they, what they say or what they're teaching or how they're living. He will often affirm that. You're doing right to do that, but you're a jerk. And, and so he tells stories which reinforce this idea. I mean, the, one of the parables, we looked at this about a year ago, one of the parables has a tax collector and a Pharisee. So the tax collector is the lowest form of human life in that culture at the time. The Pharisee is the religiously righteous, morally pure leader. And they're up at the front of the church. And, and the tax collector's at one side praying and saying, God, forgive me. I'm a broken, sinful person. And the Pharisee is saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like the tax collector. I do everything you tell me to do. And Jesus says, I picked the tax collector a hundred times out of a hundred as opposed to the smug, self-righteous Pharisee. This guy's like stealing money from people. This guy's a thug. But I would rather have a humble thug than a self-important religious person. So, the message of Jonah, one level, is don't be a religious jerk. If you are following Christ, you don't come away feeling better than other people. If you feel better than other people, you're doing something wrong. You come away more amazed at God's love and grace that he would love someone as bad as you. That doesn't mean you got low self-image. It's self-forgetfulness. Jonah gets stuck. And religion, religion can lead us to be stuck. We do not want to be self-important people. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, forgive us for the many different ways we think we are good or right or better than someone else. Help us understand how to navigate the challenges of uh, recognizing and affirming Uh, the value and worth of everyone everywhere, even as we might challenge an idea. Help us to know what it looks like to be caring, thoughtful, self-forgetful people. Help us to not be stuck. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.